In the name of the Father and Son, the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Today we will start studying together the letter of James, St. James. And obviously, each letter, imagine that you're sending an email or a letter to somebody you know, it usually will have an author, there's a goal of that letter, there is a time, there's also a format of the letter. There's always who's sending, sending it to who, when is he sending, why is he sending the letter. That's usually kind of why a letter is being sent. The letter of St. James actually um, is, a, is, an, is an important letter because it's one of those letters that's directed to the whole church. You know, like when in the feast comes, we get a letter from His Holiness Pope Tawadros. And this letter, is directed to all Christians all over the world. So we have what we call the Catholic letters, which letters are written to the whole church as a whole. That's what we read in, this, in, the, uh, in the liturgy, and James is one of them. St. Paul's letter tend to be written to a specific person or a specific church. The Catholic letters tend to be written to everybody, everybody around. Okay, so who is the author of the book of James? Okay, well, the New Testament has four James, so we have to know which James is this book for. From the first James, so the disciple of Jesus had two James and two Judas. Okay, so the first James that's, James that's mentioned in the scripture, James is the son of Zebedee. Okay, that's the John is his brother. James and John were brothers. Okay? And you see him mentioned in Mark 1.19. said when he had gone a little further from there, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. So that's the first one. James, the son of Zebedee. And he is a disciple of Jesus Christ. There is a second James. James, the son of Alphaeus. Okay? That's the second one. He was also one of the twelves. And you see him mentioned in Matthew 27.56. There were also women looking on from far, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less, and Josie and Salome. So that's the second James. Okay? The first two are disciples of our Lord Jesus Christ. The third James is James the father of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but the other Judas of the disciples. And you will see him mentioned in Luke 6.16. It says, Judas, the son of James, and Judas Iscariot, who became a traitor. I'm sorry, I'm just giving you all the names so you know exactly who James because the writer of this letter will mean a lot to us as we go through. It will actually change the way you look at this letter. The fourth James, which is the author of this letter, is actually James, the brother of Jesus. And James, the brother of Jesus, was not one of the twelve. He was not one of the twelve. He was one of the apostles, but he's not one of the twelve. And you will see him mentioned throughout the scripture. He's mentioned in Galatians, for example, 119, when St. Paul said, But I saw none of other apostles except James, the Lord's brother. Obviously, the word brother here means the cousin, the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ. And if you guys remember in John 7 5, what does the gospel the Bible says? That even his brothers did not believe in him. So James, as a cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ, did not believe in Jesus from the very beginning. That's most likely why he's not one of the twelve. 
Is that clear so far? So who is the author of this letter? Most likely it is James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's not one of the 12, he's one of the 70. All right? Um, this James that we're talking about, most likely he is the one who led the church in the book of Acts. So there were two James that led the church. One was martyred very early on, that was one of the 12, and then James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, came in and led the church in Jerusalem. And, and he sent a letter. We'll back up a little bit quickly. The center of Christianity was in Jerusalem. The main, the headquarter was in Jerusalem. And James was the, the, the apostle in Jerusalem. Later on, the second center of Christianity was in, in Antioch. Okay? So now we're talking about James, who is in Jerusalem. And St. Paul had to go to Jerusalem to make sure everything is doing. So it's almost like, you know, in the, in the, around the time when the Holy Senate meets, a lot of the bishop will go back to Egypt and they will sit with his holy spoke to address to make sure, you know, they discuss cases and everything to make sure everything is going well. So what's happening with the letter? Why is James writing this letter? And this is very important for us. There is two problems are happening. One external and one internal. A lot of the Christian that James is writing to are very poor Christians. There are people from a Jewish background and they are dispersed all over Syria, Jerusalem, Asia Minor, and they're actually financially poor. And what's happening is there's an external problem. People are taking advantage of them. Some rich people are taking them to court some wealthy landlords are treating them bad. So there's a big issue from the outside that those Christians are poor, they're being mistreated, they're not respected, and they are being taken to court, okay? But St. James is worried about what's happening inside the church as well. Think about it this way. If you have a church that everybody in the church financially poor, and then all of a sudden you have a rich man walks into the church, What's going to happen? People are going to treat the rich man differently. Everybody's poor, everybody's in need. So there was a lot of flattering to the rich inside the church. And then because people are in financial need, so there's a lot of envy, there's a lot of jealousy. Oh, this person now has a little bit more food than I do. This person upgraded their house. There was a little bit of jealousy inside the church. There's also arrogance inside the church. People also started believing that the prayer is not working. Because we pray and we're still poor. So St. James is dealing with this big issue. And this issue continues from generation to generation. This issue continues from generation to generation. People tend to be, they tend to treat each other with partiality, even inside the church. People tend to believe prayers do not work. Jealousy and envy and all these things are happening inside the church. So St. James is dealing with Christians throughout all Palestine, Asia Minor, all Judea, all these areas. He's dealing with all these Christians everywhere. Okay? To whom it's written, when St. James he, he says, I, I write to the 12 
tribes of Israel. Obviously, the 12 tribes of Israel resembles the Old Testament and also resembles the New Testament because the church becomes the new 12 tribes. That's why our Lord picked 12 disciples. Okay? And you actually see this, for example, in Matthew 19, 28. And Jesus said to them, Surely I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me will also sit on the 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes. So the follower of Jesus will be sitting on the thrones, judging the 12 tribes. So now we have followers of Jesus. They are, he's writing this to the whole church. He's not writing this to Titus or to Timothy or the church in Rome. He's writing this to the whole church. Okay? When did he write it? Well, St. James was martyred around 62 AD. So most likely he wrote it before he was martyred. A lot of people say he wrote it early on, uh, around the year of 45. Why the year of 45? Because this is when St. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans. And it seems like when St. Paul wrote his letter to the Romans, if you guys remember the letter in Romans, when St. Paul said people are justified by faith, and it seems a lot of people misunderstood what St. Paul was saying. So St. James wrote this letter to also explain what St. Paul was saying. Okay? Also, some people say the main reason it's, it's early between 45 to 47, because he does not mention any of the conflict that happened around the Council of Jerusalem, which was around the year of 50. So it means... This was a bit before that council. So between 45 to 47, that's most likely when he wrote it. Okay? So now we answered the key questions. Who sent it? James, the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, or the cousin of our Lord Jesus Christ. When did he send it? Between 45 to 47. Why did he send it? Because people were poor from the outside, and they've been mistreated by the rich. They're going to the courts. And inside the church, the church is turning into a worldly place. People are flattering the rich. People are treating people differently. There's envy, there's jealousy. From where did he write it? Most likely he wrote it around Jerusalem or, or Syria or Asia Minor. This is most likely where he was located. This is kind of the idea. Just I'll tell you guys something quickly. How do scholars know where he wrote it and when he wrote it and all this stuff? A lot of times, you know where he wrote it from the imagery he's using. In the scripture. So he's talking about landlords, landlords who, who have labors. This stuff is very hardcore in the, in, the, in the Middle Eastern time at that time. Heated debates between religious groups that was very common also in the Middle Eastern place. So that's how kind of people try to determine some of these things. Okay, sounds good. So now we covered, we covered basically all the, the, the requirement for the letter, who wrote it, why he wrote it, when he wrote it. Just really quickly, we'll go through the outline of the book, and then we'll start going through it step by step. So when you go to, if you have your notes, you can should write this down. So the first verse in chapter 1, 1, 1, is basically saluting or greeting the churches. Okay? From verse 1, from chapter 1, verse 2 until 18, he's talking about trials and Christian maturity. From verse 19 until chapter 2, verses 26, he's talking about true Christianity is seen in its works. 
And then from chapter 3 until chapter 4, verses 12, dissension within the community and how he's going to deal with it. And then from chapter 4, verse 13 till 5, 11, it's implication of a Christian worldview. What does it mean to be a Christian? And then chapter 5 from verse 12 to 20, he's concluding and encouraging people to follow the path of the Lord. Okay? So this is just basically a breakdown as we go through. So let's start together the book, one by verse by verse, to help us to understand. So the first verse he says, James, a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad greetings. When he's writing a letter, he says James. You know, it's like it seems like it's a very it's a very well known James. You know, he's not doesn't have to define himself more than that. So everybody it seems like he was a very popular person. Everybody knows who James is. He is most likely the, the cousin of Ologius Christ, his half brother. Just a very easy way to do it. He's defining himself as a bond servant of God. And actually the title servant is something that was, it's considered to be an honorable title to use. It was considered, it was used by Moses the prophet, it was used by David, it was used by Israel, Israel is my servant. Uh, so it's a title to identify him with where his mindset is. I am a servant like Moses, like Isaiah, like Jeremiah, like all the, saints, all the prophets that were before me. Okay? Now, I want you guys to think about this for a second. He says, I'm a, ser I'm a bond servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I want to stop on this for a little bit. The word Lord in Greek is kreos, okay? And it was actually a very common word used for Caesar, the emperor. And you find it actually, Caesar liked people to call him Caesar kreos. Caesar is the Lord. So the fact that James is saying, my Lord is Jesus Christ, this is not just a nice thing to say. This is something that could get him in trouble. And that's, by the way, why the Roman Empire persecuted Christianity, because they felt Christians, it's not a problem that they worship our Lord Jesus Christ, but they felt that Christians were not loyal citizens. They speak of a different kingdom, they speak of a different king, and to them at that time, it was not something common. One thing I also want you to, to really be careful about, because Christianity introduced something that no other, other religion introduced before. Every religion was tied to a location. And every location was tied to God, to a God. And yani Israel, they worship God, but they constrained themselves in Jerusalem and, and the Promised Land. The Egyptian, worship the god of the sun whatever gods they worship and these were the gods of the egyptian and to worship the god of the egyptian it means you're a good citizen to worship the god of israel it means you're a good jewish citizen and so on christianity is the first religion that says we do not belong to a specific nation our god reigns in our hearts throughout and that's why to, to the world, they were, they were a crazy group of people. Because they don't, they don't correspond to a political group. They respond to uh, just the worship. That's all what they do. 
and certain morals and principles they follow. So this was quite new. So when St. James is saying, Jesus is my Lord, it's not something easy to say in his time. So just keep that in, in, in mind. And obviously, James is addressing the 12 tribes in, in, in dispersion. We said those 12 tribes are the church, all the church. And it represents basically all of us Christians who live in an exile from their heavenly home. We, our home is heaven, and we all on earth here are facing trials and problems and issues, and life is not easy, and I feel down, and I feel a failure, and I feel not appreciated, and I feel this, and I feel that. We all are in exile. So this letter is for all of us who are living in this world in exile, and our heaven, our home is heaven. Now he's going to talk about you guys live in exile. Now let's benefit from the trials that we see. So the first thing he says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. And that's a, a quite, quite shocking statement. Okay, I'm going to break it down to you for a couple of things. Number one, obviously he calls his read, the, lead, the, the reader's brethren because he's also facing trials. He's not sitting comfortably as a b bishops in these times. They were the first people to be subjected to death. That's why St. Paul said that it is good to be a bishop. Not because, you know, it's because most likely you will be martyred. Okay? So here he's saying, count it all joy when you fall into the various trials. He's commanding people to have an unnatural response to tribulation. Like when somebody's going through difficult times, you'll be like, no, no, just be happy. Like, okay, nice to say that. It's very easy for you to say that. This is what St. James is saying. Count it all joy. Like he says, when you're, when you're ill, as he says in, verse, in chapter 5, verse 14, when you have financial setbacks in 1, 9, when you have social and economic persecution in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 6, he says, count it all joy. Look, trials are inevitable. You are not going to meet any person in this whole world who have not faced troubles. No one. But what's happening is, there is two ways to look at troubles. A secular way and a Christian way. Okay? By the way, the word secular comes from a Latin word called seculum, which means now. Which means what? Now. This is what secular society teaches us. That you have to get your happiness now. And if I don't get it now, then I'm not supposed to be happy. And all the happiness I have, all, uh, all the happiness I have is in what I own. And if I lose it, there is no reason for me to be happy. So St. James is saying, this is the secular way of looking at the world now. I want to be happy now. I want to own this now. I want to have this now. The Christian worldview is supposed to look at troubles with joy. By the way, he's not telling people, think happy thoughts and be happy and 
Just try to imagine a world you live in that when you live in it, you'll be happy and then somehow this will transmit to the life you're in that you're gonna be joyful. This is crazy stuff we hear these days. Okay? That's not what he's saying. He's saying, count it all joy. It's a command. And he's going to explain why he says that, by the way. It's such a wonderful uh, explanation. Actually, we were in the monastery last week, and I met one of the monks who were walking together, and I asked him a question about spiritual dryness. I told him, do you ever like, face a period where you feel like you're not able to pray? Like things are a bit difficult, things are a bit tough. And he told me something, it was one of the most beautiful answers I, I heard. Alibuna, we all go through spiritual dryness. But he told me, every time I go through spiritual dryness, afterwards, there's a big blessing waiting for me. So he told me, when a spiritual dryness come, I actually get happy. Because I know there's something beautiful waiting for me on the other side. Counted all joy when you fall into various trials. Why counted all joy? He's gonna he's, go, he's going to explain this specifically. Why? Because there's a specific purpose that trials is trying to teach you. Okay? He's saying knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. By the way, the word testing here is very specific to the process of refining gold and silver by fire. So what happens when you refine gold and silver by fire? You clean it and it takes all the pollutants away so you can see yourself. It reflects yourself clearly. You can know who you are. He's saying trials determine whether a person has faith or not. When you face trials, you will know that, well, are you strong in your faith or not? And you see this in the life of St. Paul. He said, you know, I, I, God has given me so, so, so much. So, so, so much. I'm preaching and I'm doing miracles and I'm doing this and I'm doing that. But then he said, a thorn was given to me in the flesh. Why? That I might not be buffed up. Otherwise, St. Paul himself, the Holy One, will be what? Arrogant. For the thorn was given to him that he may know himself. Look what, what the beautiful part of this verse is. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So when I am in trials, St. James is telling me, you should, count it, you should count it for joy. Why? Because your goal in trials is to learn how to persevere. To learn how to be patient. To learn how to be strong. Actually, the word persevere or endurance means standing your ground. It means I will pray in the midst of trials. I will not change my habits. I will still tithe, even financially, it's a list, diffi more difficult situation than me. I will stand my ground. That should be your goal and my goal when we're faced with trials. That's what faith in the trials produces 
a firm and a strong believer. So when I go to trials, I'm not thinking heavy thoughts. I'm not asking God, when is this over? When this is going to happen? I tell God, I want to persevere. The greatest thing I could offer in the time of trials is faithfulness to God. That's it. That's what God is waiting for me. And then he continues, he says, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So St. James says, If you are patient and you learn perseverance in trials, you will be, you will be on the path of Christian perfection. You'll be in the path of per Christian perfection. I'm not saying, uh, uh, I don't want to say I, I, I can't persevere because it will make me a better person. No, I want to persevere because God created me a new creation that He wants me to grow in. He wants me to be like Him. That's my goal in trials and tribulation. Okay? Now, obviously, one of the questions that will come is when I'm facing trials and tribulation, it's not easy to say I want to persevere and to understand the purpose of trials. So, one of the questions is going to come, how do I discern, how do I know, how do I deal with this trouble? And most likely you need wisdom. So, Saint James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So another purpose of trouble, of, of, of troubles, is to actually make me grow and mature. You know, like the first time, for example, you get in the car to learn how to drive. You're a bit nervous, because you know, you've never driven before, it's a little bit scary, a bit worried. The first time you get on the highway, it's a bit nervous, it's a bit worrying. The first time you take an actual test, a standardized test. But now once you keep doing these things over and over and over again, the anxiety that you had when you first got on the, behind the wheels is no longer there. You can do it every day. So what happens is, is that trials makes me now more stronger, more experienced. And in my situation, I'm gonna, I'm, a lot of times in trials, I will feel like I need wisdom to help me to discern, to help you to see the purpose, to help you to know what's happening. Wisdom, by the way, in the Old Testament was, it meant the virtue that gives you direction in life. And wisdom is not, um, is not something that I can easily get from school or from here. It is taught by God Himself. You see this in the book of Proverbs. It says, Happy is the man who finds wisdom and the man who gains understanding, for her proceeds are better than profits of silver and her gain than fine gold. So in the time of trials, I'm seeking wisdom. So I get a sense of direction in life. C.S. Lewis has a very nice saying. I'm going to read it for you because it's actually quite important. He says, For the wise men of old, 
the cardinal problem of human life was how to conform the soul to objective reality. And the solution was wisdom, self-discipline, and virtue. For the modern, the cardinal problem is how to conform reality to the wishes of a man. And the solution is techniques. Let me, let me explain this quickly. He's saying in the old days, there are two things. There is the reality of, of, of humanity, and there is the wishes and the desires of humanity. So he says in the old days, to merge these two, the philosophers and the religion taught self-discipline, virtue. That's how the reality inside of you become manifest in your life. Otherwise, you're going to live in a life that is double standard and in a life that is not pure. It says now in the, in the new days, what's happening is we want to do the opposites. I want my wishes and my desires and the desires for food and lust and, and, and. How can I make it fit the, re the reality inside of me? Like people go live a, a, a sexual life, for example, that's completely not pleasing to God. And then they start having issues. So then they go ask somebody for advice, they start teaching them techniques. You should wake up in the morning, meditate, stand on the tree, <clears throat> do whatever it is. Somehow, to help people just deal with the anxiety that's coming with sin. And that's a big gap. That is a big gap. In the old days, people used virtue. Inside of you, there's a desire to, to be good and to be humble and to love and to sacrifice. And how can you make this consistent with what we see in life? Your body wants to sleep and to eat and, 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 by self-discipline and virtue and, and. Now in the new days, live the sins you want and to deal with your anxiety and whatever it is, let's teach you some techniques. And I think that's one of the main reasons why people are running for medication and running for a lot of things quickly before treating the problem of the soul that is being damaged by this new view of the world. So wisdom is something I must ask. And God is saying basically here, in order for you to, to realize that you need wisdom, you must realize that you are foolish and you need wisdom. And it's actually one of the hardest things for us to feel, like people usually like say, I know what I'm doing. Oh, I got better this, I got this under control, I got you, Abuna, you know, all these things that we hear, right? But here, he's saying what? He says, in order for you to start, we need to start with, I am stupid, I don't know what I'm doing, God, I need wisdom. Now, he's also telling us how to ask. This is a beautiful verse. He says, God will give to all liberally and without reproach. And a lot of times when we ask God for wisdom, we say, man, I'm a sinful guy. God, God is not going to listen to me. I'm, like, it's not, I'm not like St. Mary. I'm not St. Mina. I'm not any of the saints. God will give you without reproach. God is not going to say, well, you're sinful. You sent a few times here. I can't give you wisdom. Sorry. Next person. That's not what he's saying. God is going to give you without reservation. And it's important to hold on to these verses when you come to the presence of God to ask boldly, like St. Matthew said in chapter 7. 
Ask with confidence. Ask and it will be given to you. If I come and doubting, either doubting the existence of God or doubting the goodness of God or doubting that God loves me, I will not be able to receive. Look, verse 6. He says, But let him ask in faith. See, St. James is very specific about how he asks. It's not any, very specific. Let him ask of faith with no doubting. For he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. You know, I, 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 like this last week I was, I was reading in the Gospel of Matthew and I came across this verse. And it shook my core. See what, what, what St. Matthew says. This is our Lord speaking. He says, Truly I say to you, if you have faith, and never doubts. You will not only do what has been done to the fig tree, but even if you say to mountains, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will be done. And whatever you ask in prayers, you will receive if you have faith. This is Jesus talking plainly. And we have issues with faith. Actually, the word doubting, when you come to the actual translating, translation, it's conflict in loyalties. It's the same concept that's used between when your God says you either love God or mammons. The main reason I'm doubting is because there is something else that is more predictable than God. And I feel more comfortable depending on it than God. And there's a simple concept we know that God is never predictable in our life. Why he's not predictable? Because if he's predictable, we as humans think we can have control. Anything that's predictable, you think you can control. Study hard, you'll get good grades. So you feel like it's in my hands. I can study hard and get good grades. If you didn't get good grades, I need to study harder. Just a simple equation. Predictable. We like predictable things. But here he's saying, you must ask with faith, not doubting. God is not here to say, well, you have sinned before. I can't give you this. He's here coming specifically to tell you how to ask. And actually, St. Cyril of Alexandria said, the root of doubt is pride. Which is quite, quite fascinating. The root of the doubt is pride. Because I want God to meet my expectations. In a certain way, in a specific sense, in my life. It says... For let no man, let, let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. He says, very simply, if you are doubting, asking without faith, thinking that God is going to judge you, he says, you will receive nothing. Nothing. He says, he says this man is double-minded. Actually, another, the, the, another translation for this word, it's double-souled. He has two souls. 
And actually, the, the scripture describes the sinner as with a divided heart. You see this, for example, in Psalm 12, 2, it says, They speak idle, idly, everyone with his neighbor, with flattering lips, and a double heart they speak. God does not answer prayer that comes from a heart that does not believe and wants to depend on predictable means. That's the problem. And that becomes an important aspect for our life when I pray. When I pray. Next time, St. James will give them an example of the rich and the poor as an example of tribulation. And it's actually quite beautiful because as I was telling you that the people are having issues with richness and poverty and all that stuff. It's quite beautiful because he's actually highlighting the trials of the, the poor, but also the trials of the rich. And it turns out the trial of the rich is actually difficult in the poor. And we're going to, God willing, see this next week. And glory be to God forever and ever.